The NASH Take Action podcast series is a CME program brought to you by the American Gastroenterological Association. NASH is the most advanced form of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This six-episode podcast series is ACCME accredited. The series is sponsored by a medical education grant from Novo Nordisk. You can find all six episodes and collect your CME credits at nash.gastro.org. Welcome to the NASH Take Action Podcast. I'm Dr. Jay Schubert, a family physician and diabetologist. I'm also a professor at Torrey University of California, and I have active clinical practice in an FQHC and a diabetes center. In this podcast, I and my colleague, Fasia Kanwal, will talk to global leaders in gastroenterology, hepatology, endocrinology, and primary care about the real-world practical implications of screening, diagnosing, and managing people with NAFLD and NASH. In this episode, we're talking about screening people for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in the primary care setting. Here are the four topics we'll cover today. Risk factors and risk stratification for NASH. Criteria for screening patients at high risk for NASH. Screening methods for NAFLD and NASH and emerging screening tools. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Fasia Kanwal, specializing in hepatology and the chair of the AGA NASH Initiative. Dr. Kanwal, we're so glad you could join us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm Fasiha Kanwal. I'm a gastroenterologist and hepatologist practicing at Baylor College of Medicine, Houston, Texas. Great. We're talking today about screening patients for NAFLD in the primary care setting. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about risk factor and risk factor stratification for NASH, how to make a timely diagnosis, and really highlight some of the things that are coming out in a new clinical care pathway published in gastroenterology. So why is this topic important, Dr. Kanwal? This topic is important because non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFL, is becoming the most common chronic liver disease in the U.S. and I have to say globally. Uh, Recent data indicate that as many as 24%, which is one in four people globally could have NAFLD. Um, So it's a very, very common problem. And there is a distinct subset that is at risk for more advanced disease, uh, which is characterized by inflammation and fibrosis or scar tissue in the liver. And those individuals are at risk for significant um, chronic advanced liver disease uh, if left uh, undiagnosed or or untreated. Um, Not just the risk of liver disease is significant, but these patients are also at risk for cardiovascular uh, events in the intermediate to long term. So recognizing this is important. Identifying those patients who are at risk is important. Um, And why this is important to talk in the context of primary care setting, because, um, Jay, as you know, most of these patients are seen first in a primary care setting. Um, So that is sort of the front end leaders um, and clinicians that we need to make sure they're aware of this condition and also um, equip them with different tools and, and techniques to identify patients at risk, uh, to risk stratify them, and to triage their care earlier on. These are the specific aspects that are 
covered in the NASH clinical care pathway that you referred to. Yeah, and this is so important. I think in the primary care setting, we've seen the emergence of NAFLD and NASH. And early on, it felt like, well, we had to do all these things to make sure someone didn't have another liver disease. But ultimately, it was all held up by a liver biopsy. And it sounds like what we've learned now is that actually, as highlighted in the clinical care pathway, we're able to risk stratify which patients need to be managed mostly with lifestyle, which patients really need further testing, and which patients really need kind of immediate hepatology care. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. And that was one of the main reasons and goals of the clinical care pathway to, to make sure those patients are can be separated up front as safe and uh, effective manner as possible. And um, there is a big subset of patients that could be managed in primary care setting after they've been risk stratified. Yes, there is a distinct group that will need to be referred to specialty care, both hepatology and I would say perhaps endocrinology, uh, but it's a smaller group compared to the larger group. And uh, the, the risk stratification part of the pathway uh, describes uh, what tools can be used, they're easy to use, very simple to do, very cheap to do, um, that could potentially prevent as many as half of the patients or even more from further testing and evaluation. And you're absolutely right. Um, clinical care and our, the pathway is shifting away from need of liver biopsy uh, because several non-invasive tests are available uh, both for the first tier testing as well as the second tier testing. Yeah. And you highlight something that I think is so important that I want our listeners to kind of focus on is that NAFLD and NASH really is part of that cardiometabolic syndrome, right? So these patients who have obesity, these patients who have diabetes, patients who have uh, metabolic syndrome, many of these patients are also going to have NAFLD. And so I, it should not be just segmented out. We should see this as a continuum of cardiovascular risk because absolutely this disease does not stand alone, but is part of this continuum. And we need to look at that in the big picture of what's going to harm our patient or kill our patient. Um, and yes, there's liver-specific endpoints, but there's also many cardiovascular endpoints. You're absolutely correct, Jay. And that's why this initiative um, that led to clinical care pathway, I believe, is important because it is really um, a multidisciplinary effort where um, experts from all different fields came together. Uh, primary care, hepatology, the two groups that we are representing, but we had experts from endocrinology, obesity medicine, uh, really putting um, uh, all the evidence that cross-cuts the whole spectrum of disease together and um, addressing not just the liver aspects, but really the cardiometabolic aspects of disease in terms of uh, management that we will talk about uh, later the management uh, recommendations, they apply not just to liver, but to risk reduction for cardiovascular endpoints. And that's why I think this topic is important. And, and that's why the clinical care pathway is important, because it is not just solely limited, limited to just one narrow aspect um, of uh, endpoints that the patients might encounter. Jay, in your practice, I'm sure you see um, a lot of patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease what is the dilemma that you face or have faced uh, in terms of risk stratification and yes, screening? Historically, this has been a real challenge because, you know, first of all, my first introduction to NAFLD and NASH 
was the sudden surprise of someone who had no awareness of liver disease present with cirrhosis. So for many primary care, that's my introduction to NAFLD. And then suddenly I'm like, well, where did this come from? And of course, that is somewhat reflected in the name because we used to see patients who had elevated transaminases and we assumed they were drinking alcohol when they reported they were not. Um, but because the uh, obesity epidemic, at least in the United States, we've seen such an emergence of elevated transaminases, even well above true normals, that we became somewhat laissez-faire, oh, well, that's just because you have fatty liver, without actually making a real accurate diagnosis. So we went from being very scared and hypervigilant to almost being too relaxed. And, and of course, there are many things that can affect transaminases. What's so great about this initiative and the, and the clinical care pathway is it gives us guidance to, one, know who to screen for, those patients who are at high risk, those patients who have had metabolic syndrome or diabetes, those who are found to have steatosis or elevated transaminases should require further workup. And specific to the NAFLD and NASH workup is really trying to assess what's their risk for fibrosis. And, you know, we're going to hear a little bit from our speakers about the benefit of something like the FIB4, which is widely available and very cheap and available in our practices that allows us to start that first stage. The other thing is that, you know, we used to use ultrasound, but really ultrasound just tells us that there's fat in the liver. It doesn't actually tell us much more. And so now that we have things like FibroScan, which is actually, to my own learning, was more available than I thought it was. I didn't think I had access to FibroScan, but after this experience, I do. And it wasn't that I suddenly got it became available. I was just aware of it. And so I think there are tools that are available now. They'll really allow us to decide which patients need further evaluation and treatment and which patients need referral. And so I went from being in the light to in the dark, and now I'm back in the light. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> yeah. And I know that this, um, the, the management uh, and the diagnosis of NAFLD and NASH is a, a, an ongoing process. So while we have tools today, there may be even new things coming. Could you comment a little bit on emerging screening tools that might be used, if not in the short future, in the longer future? Yes, um, absolutely. As we uh, referred to in the pathway, you can think of these tools um, at different tiers. So the tier one, where the pathway recommends using something which is very simple, non-invasive, and could really be calculated based upon routine tests that we do as part of clinical care. Uh, a simple chem panel, for example, or a CBC, where you can get information for from platelet counts, AST, ALT, combine that with age to calculate FIB4 for it. Very easy to do. For those uh, screening tests, I do think they will stay because they're simple, they're cheap, and they're the first uh, tier tests. However, there is a lot of work that's happening at the second or tier or more for diagnostic tests that we will see those emerge in the next five to 10 years. Uh, a lot of work is happening on blood-based biomarkers. Uh, the ones that we have right now, they are good, but I believe they will get more, become more accurate. There are a few that are in the pipeline, few that we have lots of data for. Some of them are referred to in in the pathway, they're looking for markers of fibrogenesis or markers of inflammation in the blood. And when combined together, they can be 
very accurate, perhaps even as accurate as FibroScan, which is an imaging-based test. So we'll see uh, quite a few blood-based biomarkers that will become available, um, or at least will be available for use. Whether they are widely accessible to all the practitioners, that's another question. That's why I think the simple non-invasive test will still have a place in the pathway, even in the long term. There's also quite a bit of work that's happening on the imaging uh, based biomarkers. Uh, we talk a little bit about um, MRE, or magnetic resonance-based elastography, which is uh, based upon the data more um, sensitive and specific than the FibroScan, or uh, vibration-controlled um, transient elastography-based uh, testing, but at the same time more expensive and also not as readily available. The way things will move, and I think we are stepping in that direction, is uh, combination testing evaluation. So based upon two or three different biomarkers um, to risk stratify patients. Um, so yes, the uh, short uh, answer is we will be seeing more developments and more advancements. And we might come back in a few years and do an update to the clinical care pathway to reflect some of those changes. Uh, but what is more relevant for um, the primary care clinicians is that the first step I believe, will remain valid and uh, practical for, for at least five plus years to come. Yeah. What an exciting time to have kind of ways we can have actionable steps to help evaluate and treat our patients with NAFLD and NASH. And as many of our uh, listeners may have already identified, these podcasts are taking a look at this topic from many different angles. And so today's topic, I had the pleasure of speaking with two primary care specialists to talk about screening for NAFLD and NASH, Dr. Eugene Wright of Duke University and Dr. Kim Fotenhauer of Michigan State University. They spoke about how this works in the real world. How do they implement some of the things that we talked about in this clinical care pathway? And this is what they had to say. So Gene and Kim, uh, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about NAFLD and NASH as part of this process, but you know, this is something that affects a lot of people in primary care. Why do you think we're hearing so much about NAFLD and NASH? So I think that we're hearing a lot about it because it's really just becoming so much more prevalent. We have 37% of adults in the U.S. that are affected by it, and it's becoming the second leading cause for liver transplant behind, behind hepatitis C. And really, we see it as, as primary care. We're on the front lines of the diagnosis and the screening of it. You know, we're also seeing increased diagnosis of this. A lot of it we're picking up on incidental findings. People are finding fatty liver on incidental ultrasounds, ultrasounds for other conditions. And we're now, we, we have this condition we're picking up and trying to learn a little bit more about what to do. And I think it's important to remember that it's not without risk, right? We're, we're picking it up more and it is increasing risk in our patients and it's increasing kidney disease risk, increasing cardiovascular risk. So it's really important to find that early. So NAFLD and NASH, uh, as I remember, used to just present with elevated transaminases, but it's really much more than that. How should we be seeing or identifying NAFLD and NASH in our practices, Gene? You know, I think what we need to do is to understand first who's at risk. Certainly those patients with type 2 diabetes, right in age 50 particularly, patients with obesity, and or patients who have two or greater uh, of the metabolic syndrome uh, complex of uh, conditions. Those are the patients that we really should be screening because they're at the greatest risk. 
And it, I assume that's common in primary care. We see these patients down here in North Carolina a lot. Our <laughs> challenge is that they have more than two of the risk of metabolic uh, syndrome. And Kim, how do you introduce this to patients? You know, to start to say that we're going to screen them. Yeah, so I really talk to them about how, you know, this is another one of those diseases that sometimes doesn't present with symptoms. It's something that is sometimes there, but that we don't know is there until we test for it or screen for it um, with our tools. And when we do that, and the reason we do that is because it's going to change their long-term outcomes. It's something, you know, similar to diabetes, where often a lot of people don't know they have it, but it can really affect their long-term health. So let's say that I have a patient that comes in with type 2 diabetes. They have those metabolic risk factors. Gene, what's the next thing I do? Well, the next thing to do is to use what you already have. If you're doing a BMP panel, you have the fundamentals to get a FIB4. The FIB4 is a screening test in these high-risk patients that can be used to identify those patients who are at greatest risk for going on to fibrosis. Uh, a FIB4 score of less than 1.3 gives you some reassurance. It's pretty good negative predictive value. So you can know that at least for the moment, the patient may be okay and you may need to rescreen them at some point in time. So if I remember, uh, the FIB4 score, it's got age, it's got sex, it's got the AST, ALT, and the platelets. So these would be key things that you would be able to have to measure your FIB4 score. With that information that's generally available at all of your visits, it's an easy score to calculate. And, and how do I find the FIB4 score? There are a number of generic calculators that are available to just take, plug it in, and in you know, 10 seconds, you have your answer. So I do a FIB4 score. Kim, how do I interpret it? Yeah, so the FIB4 score is really looking at um, steatosis, so NASH the non-alcoholic steatohepatitis is really what we're concerned about. So that's the increased fibrosis um, that can progress along the whole spectrum of disease. So that FIB4 score tells us about the fibrosis that's present in the liver or suspected fibrosis. That just stratifies the patient into a low risk, an um, intermediate risk, or a high risk. And then you as the physician have to decide, okay, what pathway out of there um, to get the, the patient the next screening or the next testing to make a diagnosis. And do we have any cutoff levels that we should recommend for different steps? Great question. A score of 1.3 or less is low risk, considered low risk category, and those patients can be rescreened periodically. I recommend rescreening them about once a year because the, the, the lab values that you need to do it are readily available. A score of greater than 1.3 to 2.6 is considered indeterminate risk. Now, those patients need to go on to a next level of testing, as a, such as a liver stiffness measurement, or LSM. Patients who have a FIB4 score greater than 2.67, those are at high risk, and those patients most certainly need to have a liver stiffness measurement and possibly be referred to a hepatologist. So that is the screening for the patients who are at high risk. But we also identify these patients, as you mentioned, when they have let's say, uh, fatty liver noted on an imaging scan. Kim, how would I start that process for that patient? So that patient is a little bit different in that incidental finding. So first we have to rule out alcohol as a cause, right? So that's a, um, right there, that is a cause rather than the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. 
We also want to look at any other causes of liver disease, and there's a whole host of tests to go through to look for that. Um, then we stratify them by a FIB4. If they come back in that indeterminate range, that's where we get um, imaging involved. So the imaging that Jean was talking about, the liver stiffness measurement, that can be done in a number of ways. The most common is the fiber scan, which is called in the U.S., or the vibration-controlled transient elastography. So that's just a fancy name for liver ultrasound that uses a specialized low-frequency wave to measure the stiffness of the liver. We have some other options, but those are usually used in um, research, things like MRE, the magnetic resonance elastography. Um, but so the, the best one that you're going to find probably in a clinical practice is going to be the VCTE. And is something like FibroScan or VCTE readily available? In most areas, it is. Sometimes you have to look. It won't be at all um, facilities, but should be in most areas across the United States. So because primary care is the uh, probably the screener of most of these patients, if we get a low FIB4 score, meaning that the person's low risk for progression to fibrosis, uh, Gene, what's the next step? The next step for most of these patients is lifestyle modification. And it's, the lifestyle modification is consistent with what we tell our patients with diabetes, our patients with cardiovascular disease. So you want them to modify their diet. You'd like them to get some physical activity in on a regular basis with the goal of possibly losing some weight. And it doesn't have to be a great deal of weight. Somewhere between 5 and 10% of their body weight can be significant for them in terms of decreasing their risk. And yet another reason to let our patients know the benefit of healthy lifestyle change and weight loss, because it will affect those metabolic risk factors as well as diabetes. So with an indeterminate score, the next step is going to be imaging. So you're going to measure the liver stiffness in a couple of ways. The most common is VCTE or vibration-controlled transient elastography, also called FibroScan in the United States. Um, that's readily available. Primary care can absolutely order this. And then that will tell us how much fibrosis is present. Do these patients then need to move on to a referral to hepatology? Or is it someone that we can then watch and retest in a certain period of time? So you're, uh, you mentioned that the FIB4 score was in the indeterminate range. You did the fiber scan. And if it comes back not high risk, what's the next step? So those are the patients we're going to want, want to watch a little bit more closely. And so those patients we will rescreen with the FIB4 and then possibly rescreen with the liver stiffness measurement on a two to three year basis. What about our high risk patients? So they have either a very high FIB4 score or they, they're high risk on the fiber scan. What should the primary care do? Well, the primary care physician at this point should, in addition to what they would do in terms of their lifestyle modification, diet, and exercise, really consider strongly referring the patient to a hepatologist. And when the referral to the hepatologist, you're sending the FEB4 score and the liver stiffness measurement so that the hepatologist knows exactly what they're dealing with when they get the referral. I think it's also important to remember that if you're in that indeterminate phase two and you can't get a liver stiffness measurement, that's another great time for a referral to a hepatologist because sometimes they do have resources and access to imaging that we may not as primary care in our area. So what I remember is that we would find patients with elevated transaminases. We would rule out other forms of hepatitis. And then ultimately, these patients went to liver biopsy. Sounds like this paradigm is changing that. Is that correct? 
Well, I think that's the beauty of the clinical care pathway now. We have these non-invasive tests that can be done with, what well, first, commonly uh, found parameters on uh, BMP screening exams, as well as uh, ultrasound, non-invasive, uh, specialized ultrasound techniques that we don't have to get send everybody for liver biopsy for screening. So as we wrap up here, if you had one or two things that you'd really want all primary care to know, what would be your key messages, Kim? So I think it's important to remember to look for these things. If we're not seeing them, we're not going to be able to treat them. We're not going to be able to change the outcome in our patients. And so with this care pathway, what I love about it is it's something you can do in your office when you see a patient uh, for their yearly exam. And it's something that you can calculate off of basic labs you already have. So if we're not thinking about it, we won't see it. Um, and if we're thinking about it and seeing it, then we should definitely screen for it. I would only add to that that in these patients, recognize that they are the same patients that you're currently seeing at risk for cardiovascular disease, renal disease. So when you see one of these, look for the others. Look at this whole cardiorenal metabolic system together. Look for those patients and then screen them now with these non-invasive tests that we have. Absolutely. So if we have that whole kind of 360 of care, then that's what's going to change the outcomes for their cardiovascular disease, for their renal disease. So again, I think it highlights the importance that we provide whole patient care. And as we address one factor, it has myriad effects that ripple across multiple conditions that can improve not only our total patient health, but morbidity and mortality. So one of our patients goes through this screening pathway and they have a low risk with the FIB4 measurement, but they, they came to us with elevated transaminases. What do we do with the statin gene? You know, I would say absolutely continue the statins. And remember that these patients have a metabolic risk for cardiovascular disease, renal disease, and NASH, which has been determined to be low risk. So in addition to diet and exercise, continue the statin therapy. So to summarize, we've heard today that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH are common, and they're seen regularly in primary care. We may not always recognize it. We have tools now in primary care that allow us to screen for these patients to determine their risk for progression to NASH and fibrosis. So remember that the FIB4 score with tools that we have already in our practice, we could screen. If they're low risk, continue the great work you're doing with lifestyle modification and weight loss. If they're intermediate risk, consider the use of a fiber scan. And if they're high risk, consider the use of a fiber scan and referral to hepatology. We hope that these clinical care pathways really allow us to provide evidence-based and efficient care for our patients so we get the right intensity of care for the right patient while we continue to work to improve and identify these silent conditions. So I want to thank you both for joining me today. This is such an important topic and certainly something we see every day in primary care. For the listeners, I invite you to go to the Gastroenterology Journal to see the, the white paper that's been published and the clinical care pathway that's intended to be used across all practices so we can do team-based care. Thank you very much. Thank you, Fasia, and special thanks to our guests, Eugene Wright and Kim Fotenhauer. Thank you all for joining us for this episode on screening of NAFLD and NASH. You can find the other five episodes in this series the NASH Clinical Care Pathway, and more resources at the program's website, nash.gastro.org. Visit nash.gastro.org to get your CME credits 
and find Clinical Pearls and a full transcript of this episode. Be sure to listen to the other five podcasts in this series on NAFLD and NASH covering important topics like diagnosis, management, and teen-based care. Also at nash.gastro.org, you can download our NASH app to help you apply what you've learned in clinical practice. Thanks also to our sponsor, the American Gastroenterological Association and for the medical education grant from Novo Nordisk.